Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. We are involved in a sermon series entitled Divine Invitation from the Gospel of Mark. And it's all about that you have been invited to something exciting, something new, something different, something better than anything else in this world or eternity. And it began with a story told 20 centuries ago. And like other stories told in ancient times, it, it should have just faded into historical oblivion and we would never have heard it. But this story did not. It's a story told by two men about one man who changed the world forever. And that story is what we know as the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the story of the Apostle Peter's experience with Jesus as told by John Mark, his friend, his ministry partner. And Peter is telling the story of actually many stories of events that took place as Peter walked with Jesus when Jesus was here on earth doing his earthly ministry. And the apostle Peter saw Jesus heal people. He saw him feed the multitudes. He saw him walk on the water. He heard him teach about many things, and one of the things that he heard about most is the theme from the Gospel of Mark that we're building this series on, and it is the truth of the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Peter not only witnessed these events as an eyewitness, he also witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus and his burial. He knew that Jesus, his Master, his teacher, the one that he had believed in and, and invested his life in, and also the one he had denied when the heat was on, that he was dead. And then he encountered the resurrected Christ who offered Peter, who had failed Jesus so miserably, he offered him forgiveness and compassion and restoration. And so these stories that Peter had been uh, telling for 30 years after the resurrection in sermons and in personal conversations and in dialogues with groups of people everywhere he went, he was telling the story over and over again for three decades. And now it is near the end of Peter's life. He is imprisoned in the city of Rome where he would be executed by Nero, the Roman emperor. And, and John Mark is in his cell, we believe, sitting down with him saying, Peter, tell me these stories just one more time. I, I want to write them down. I want to make a journal. I want to keep a record because these stories must not be lost. We have followers of Jesus scattered throughout the world. I need to get these in writing so that they may hear these stories and know what you witnessed. And neither man had any idea that after John Mark took 
his journal following Peter's execution to Alexandria, Egypt to be copied by scribes because there was no printing press, there were no copiers. These handwritten copies that would be distributed throughout the world of the first century would be preserved for 400 years, and at that time, four centuries after the resurrection, a group of church leaders led by the Holy Spirit of God would compile this writing along with three other gospel accounts, a history of the early church that we know as the book of Acts that was written by Luke, Letters that were written by the apostles, the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, the apostle John, and would also have the vision that John had in the latter years of his life of the end times in powerful symbols and, and the mystery of the, the end times would be recorded as what we call the book of Revelation. And all of these, led by the Holy Spirit, were compiled by the early church leaders in the fourth century to become sacred scripture, what we call the New Testament, which is paired along with the Old Testament, the centuries-old writings that prophesied of the coming of Messiah, and then the story of Messiah, Jesus would fulfill all that had been foretold. And so I say all that to say, today and any of the weeks that you listen to the messages in this series, I don't want you to just hear me reading from the Bible. Though certainly what I'm reading is inspired Scripture. We believe here at Magnolia's First that all Scripture is absolutely perfect and true without any error because the authors were guided and guarded by the Holy Spirit from any error. So it is indeed Holy Scripture. But I don't want you to just hear me reading the Bible. I want you to hear it as the account of an eyewitness who actually saw Jesus with his own eyes, heard him with his own ears, experienced these stories that we will hear firsthand from the lips of Jesus himself. I want you to hear these stories as they are told from an eyewitness to a close friend. And Mark's gospel begins, his journal of Peter's experiences begins with the account of the one who would come before Jesus to announce the way that the king was coming and the kingdom of God was arriving. So let's begin with the very first, first verse of Mark's account. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I want to take just that first half of that first verse, and I want its meaning to come into focus for us. Again, this is the experience of the Apostle Peter recorded by John Mark. And so here is Peter who was an eyewitness to these accounts, these stories, these experiences from the ministry of Jesus. It is now 30 years later, and he is more convinced than ever that Jesus 
is the Son of God. Skip with me down to verse 15 of Mark chapter 1. The time promised by God has come at last. This is John the Baptist speaking. He announced, the kingdom of God is near. So what does that mean people should do? Repent of your sins and believe the good news. John the Baptist is saying, as Peter recounts that story, John the Baptist is saying that what the Old Testament had prophesied for century after century after century, all that the prophetic writings had spoken of that would come to pass was happening. The king had arrived and the kingdom was here. As we began this series last week, this was our main theme for last week's message. The kingdom of God has come and you are invited to be a part of it. That's the most exciting part of all. You and I are invited to be a part of the kingdom of God. So what must we do to do that? First of all, John said, repent of your sins. Now, we don't use the word repent in common conversation today very much, but it still means the same thing if you grew up in church like I did, that repent has meant all of these years. To repent of sin means that we turn our back on the old life of unforgiven sin. We turn away from that old life of sin-corrupted living, and we turn to a new life filled with faith in Jesus Christ. And John said, repent of your sins and believe the good news. The good news. Gospel actually means good news. And when Jesus preached the good news, good things happened. Lives were changed. Eternities were altered. And if you don't hear the gospel as good news, (laughs) either we aren't preaching it well or you're not listening. The gospel is good news. The gospel turns a condemned sinner into a reborn saint of God. The gospel turns a life without purpose or meaning into a life filled with divine destiny. The good news takes a person whose whose mind has no good judgment and no wisdom and no direction into a person in whom the Holy Spirit resides to give direction and to give wisdom and to impart truth. That, my friends, is good news. It's good news. The good news of the gospel will radically alter how you understand the world around you and how you ascertain what is truth. And the two stories that we will pull from Mark's gospel today from Peter's memory will show us just how radically it will change it. So our big idea, and we do this in all of our messages here at Magnolia's First, we have a a big idea, a one-sentence summary of the whole message. So if you forget everything else I say, if you can remember the gist of this one sentence, you'll have gotten the heart of the message. Here it is for today. The kingdom of God changes the way we think about sin and the way we relate to sinners. And you'll see that unfold in these two stories. 
So let's begin our first story. We're still in Mark chapter 1. Let's go down to verse 39. And the first story begins there. And we'll see in both of these stories, really, how Jesus loved all sinners. Verse 39. So he, Jesus, traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. A man with leprosy, and I'll come back to that in a moment. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, he said, you can heal me and make me clean. Now, there there are two phrases in what this man said to Jesus that, that I want us to extract meaning because they're incredibly significant for understanding a biblical doctrine of faith and healing. He said, if you are willing, you can heal me. He was saying in that statement, Jesus, I believe you can heal me. I believe you have the ability. I believe, I have faith, you have the power and authority to give me healing, to make me clean of leprosy. And if you're not familiar with leprosy, it was very common in the first century. It's, it's not all that common in our world today, though it still exists. But leprosy was a scourge. Uh, we think of the pandemic and how that has spread in our world today. Leprosy was a, a, a killer just, just like any terminal disease, but it was more than that. It turned the the sufferer, it turned the the victim into a hideous display of sores that would ooze and and just be all over their body. It would disfigure their face. It just turned them into uh, just a, a horrible example of human suffering. And yet this man that was riddled with this disease said to Jesus, I believe you can heal me. But then he also said, if you are willing, I believe you can, Jesus, I am praying that you will, that you will. We pray for healing as Bible-believing Christians, as Christ followers, all the time. At the end of our service, we have a prayer time and a, a time that we invite people to take the next step in their faith journey. But we also have a time that we do what the Scripture teaches in the book of James. And it says, if you are sick, ask one of the elders of the church to anoint you with oil and pray that you might be healed. James chapter 4, look it up. It doesn't mean that people will be healed every time, but the oil with which we anoint those who are sick is a symbol of God's healing mercy. And we do that as a statement like this man, we believe that God can heal. But if you've had any life experience, you know that there are people for whom we pray that are not healed. Now, we've seen divine healing in our church many times in little children, in in median adults, in senior adults. We've seen people healed of cancer. We've seen people healed of surgeries that have gone bad. We've had little children that had life-threatening diseases that were made whole and healthy. We, we know, we believe God can heal, but we also know not everybody we pray for is healed. And we, we don't understand 
the, the timing and the, the plans of a sovereign God. But I think what this, this story tells us, among other things, is that we need to have that same kind of faith and that same wisdom of understanding. Jesus could heal. And, and our faith, kingdom faith, teaches us to believe that Jesus can heal anyone of anything. Baptist ought to say amen right there. He can heal anyone of anything. We've seen it happen. And so have Christ followers all over the world. But the other side of that healing faith equation is this. Our faith teaches us to pray that he will heal in answer to prayer, but to give him glory even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. And by the way, let me just stop here to refute a heresy. And if I offend anybody here who who believes in this, I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm trying to be clear and scriptural. If anyone teaches you that there is a certain way you can pray and a certain way you can heal and you can kind of back God into a corner where he has to heal in answer to your faith, and if he doesn't, you didn't have enough faith. If somebody teaches you that, and it's common today, sadly, they are teaching you a false and destructive heresy. Our God is a healing God, but he is also a sovereign God in whose will we must trust and give him glory. He doesn't always heal, but sometimes he does. And in this case, he did. Verse 41, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Now, a couple of things quickly. If, if you were reading from some other translations, instead of starting with moved with compassion, it would say Jesus was indignant or Jesus became angry. And you look at the two translations and you say, I, I don't understand. They seem to contradict each other. No, actually both were true. Jesus was indignant. Jesus was angry, but not at the man. He had done nothing to bring this disease on himself. Jesus was indignant and angry at the treatment of the religious leaders, the self-righteous hypocrites, because how they treated people with leprosy was with shame and disgrace and condemnation. And that made Jesus angry that the poor man would be treated in such a way. But Jesus was also moved with compassion for this man who was suffering and this man who had great faith. You see, the religious leaders had taught you shouldn't even touch a person who has leprosy. That not only might you catch the disease, that wasn't their main concern, that you might become ceremonially unclean. It would mess up your religious standing with them according to their tradition, not scripture, but their tradition. And so they taught that not only should you not touch them, if you even see a leper, you should begin to shout, unclean, unclean, and everybody was supposed to run away and leave the one suffering in shame and disgrace and suffering. And Jesus saw that man and he had compassion for him and anger 
at the treatment of those who were supposed to represent God. Now you hear that and you say, that's a horrible ancient story. I'm sure glad that we don't do that today. Oh no, wait a minute. There are churches today that treat people who are guilty of certain sins, and by the way, they're always different sins than the one the church people are guilty of. People that are guilty of certain sins, and they treat them not with compassion, not with grace. They treat them, much like the Pharisees, with shame and condemnation and judgment. And I think it causes Jesus to be angry that those who are supposed to represent him won't even touch people who are guilty of those sins. Listen, Jesus didn't care about religious tradition. He didn't care about the tradition of the Pharisees. He cared about a hurting sinner in need of healing and forgiveness. And Jesus was not afraid to touch him. And when he touched him, something miraculous happened. Verse 42, instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. This is very interesting to me because he was asking the man to make the journey. They were in the area of Capernaum. He was, he was telling him to go to the temple. That's in Jerusalem. It was about a walk of 78 miles. It would be like walking to Galveston. So it was no small demand that Jesus was putting on him. He wanted those in the temple, the temple priests, the Pharisees, he wanted them all to see that this man had been healed of leprosy by the touch of Jesus. And he instructed the man to go and to give testimony. And and what's really interesting here is that Jesus himself, who did the healing, and that was also required by their tradition to come when a leper had been healed, the healer was to come to the temple as well. Jesus did not go. And Jesus was in essence saying to them, I do not have to come to fulfill your tradition, your law, because I don't need to come give tribute to God. I am God. I am the healer. And the law is not what heals. Your tradition is not what heals. Well, the second story is about a man who was sick as well. But this man couldn't do what the leper could do. You may remember at the beginning of the story it said that the leper ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. But this man couldn't do that because this man was paralyzed He'd been paralyzed his whole life. He had no ability to move whatsoever. He couldn't even get to Jesus without the help of some friends. And that's what happened. Go with me to Mark chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll see the beginning of the second story. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, 
The news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. Picture the scene. The, this big and spacious home was packed with people. The windows which were open had people peering in outside the doors. People were lined up trying to get near Jesus. Middle of verse 3, while he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. But they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. They couldn't get to him. So they dug a hole through the roof. Now let me just stop and say this. Before they could dig a hole in the roof, they had to get up on the roof. And so it was no small thing for them to get this man who was paralyzed up on the roof of this house and to prepare to try to dig a hole and lower him down. And so it says, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head, meaning Jesus. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Now, I want you, you may know this story, but I want, you to, I want you to picture this. And I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, but let me just draw a parallel. Let's say I'm preaching the good news, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the sermon, there comes a man from that square up there. Can you see that? Somehow, these guys got through that, and all of a sudden, this man starts coming down toward the, the floor. I can promise you nobody's looking at the platform anymore. I mean, the sermon's over, and every eye is on this man who is coming down in front of the one who is telling the good news. And and things are going through their minds. For the host, I think he's wondering, who's going to pay for that hole in my roof? But for the people who have packed this home and are overflowing outside, they're looking and they're going, wait a minute, We know this man. This man has been in our community his whole life. This man has been paralyzed all of his life. What is Jesus going to do? Verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now wait a minute. This man and his friends were coming to Jesus because he wanted to be healed. He wanted not to be paralyzed anymore. He wanted to be able to live a normal life. He, he really had not come there to have somebody forgive his sins. He probably didn't even understand the theology of all of that. And yet, Jesus gave him something that was far more valuable than physical healing because of his faith. He gave him the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. What a gift. So everyone in the crowd would just be thrilled, right? No. Verse 6. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. These religious phonies, these self-righteous hypocrites are saying, 
What is happening that he would say, your sins are forgiven? We're not in the temple. There's no priest here. There's no sacrifice that's been offered. Is he saying that he's replacing centuries of our tradition and teaching and ceremony and rituals and and replacing everything we have been taught and always believed? Who does Jesus think he is? Does he think he can undo all of our rituals and traditions and liturgy and ceremony and sacrifices? And that was exactly what Jesus was doing. The old was fading away. The new was replacing it. The king had arrived. And the kingdom of God had come. Verse 8. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. Let me just pause right there. You know, you would think if you'd seen Jesus just do miracles and feed him seem feed multitudes and all of that kind of thing, and then he could read your mind, you probably ought to believe in him. He read their minds. He knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, verse 8, why do you question this in your heart? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is saying, do you need proof that I am God incarnate? That I have the authority to forgive sins? That I have power over all things? Do you need proof that I can do the impossible? Then open your eyes and see for yourself the middle of verse 10. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And I think in that moment, it was dead quiet. And every eye was on this man. And in my sanctified imagination, I can just see that man from his mat looking up at Jesus and the Savior looking at him and nodding. And then verse 12. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Jesus, now stop and think. Jesus had done something that was physiologically impossible. He had done something that no human being could do. He had had done something that only one with the authority of God could do. Because think about this. What healing, what physical healing actually does, follow me, is to reverse the consequences of sin. 
Because you see, in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, before they sinned and rebelled against God, before they brought sin into the human race to corrupt the human race with all of its different manifestations, before sin entered the human race, there was no sickness. There was no disease. There was no death. But sin brought all of that into humankind. And for every generation since Adam and Eve's sin, sickness and disease and death has run rampant as it still does today and it will do until Jesus comes back again. But when Jesus healed that man in that instant, he reversed the consequences of sin. He showed he had authority. He had power. The kingdom of God had come. So what do these stories mean to us? I mean, we can look at those stories and just say, well, those those are good stories from the Bible. Thank you very much. Is it time for lunch yet? But what we need to do is to ask ourselves, what questions does this bring up about our own faith journey. We learned the wonderful experiences of the two men that were healed in those two stories, but what about us? What questions should this cause us to ask ourselves? And so I want to shoot a couple at you. Here's the first one. Will you be willing to love the lepers in your life? Now, you may say, well, I don't know anybody that has leprosy. Well, okay, not physical, not the physical disease of leprosy, but, but who do you look upon as ancient people in the first century looked upon lepers? With shame and disgrace and condemnation and judgment. Is there somebody that doesn't look like you, doesn't think like you, doesn't act like you, doesn't believe like you, somebody that's very different from you, and instead of having the love and the compassion that Jesus had for sinners, you look at them more like a leper. And so the question for us as Christ followers is, Will you change and instead be willing to reach out and touch them? Maybe it's a family member who's wandered a long way from the faith and what they've been taught. Maybe it's somebody you know that's very far from Christ and you kind of subconsciously think, oh, they're too far gone. God can't save them, not unless they know the love of Christ through his people. Here's the second question. Do you need to be forgiven of the sin in your life? If you're here today and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you need the very same thing the man on that mat needed that day. You need your sins forgiven. And if you'll have the kind of faith he had that day, if you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you will trust in him, if you will step across the line of faith and become a Christ follower by faith, turning your back on the old life of unforgiven sin, you can have what that man received. And we want to encourage you to take the next step in your faith journey, whatever that is. We conclude our services each week with a time of prayer and invitation. And the prayer time is twofold. If you need healing, I encourage you to come and 
I will anoint you and my wife and I will pray over you and we'll pray that God will give you the same healing mercy that he gave to those men that day. If you have other kinds of of prayer needs, uh, our deacons and their wives are going to be standing at the front and in the balcony in just a moment, and they will pray with you about anything on your heart. We'll not stay long, but this time of prayer could be a turning point in your faith. But if you're here today and you know God has been tugging on your heart and you need to move closer to him. You may not even be sure exactly what that means, but you need to take the next step in your faith journey. Then I would ask you to come to one of these prayer partners and just say this, very simple. I need to take the next step. And if you'll say that, I need to take the next step, they will show you how you can do that and pray with you and counsel and encourage you and give you resources to take the next step in your faith journey. I'm going to pray, and they're going to come, and then we're going to stand together for a brief time of prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the kingdom of God has come and that we no longer have to wonder how to be made right with a holy God who sees our sin for what it is, but you have sent your son to be our sacrifice. And if we will put our faith and trust in him, we will be saved, we will be born again, we will become Christ followers. And so I pray if there's anyone who needs to take the next step in their faith journey, whatever that might be, help them to have the courage to come and say to one of these prayer partner couples, I need to take the next step. And Lord, for all of the prayer needs that are represented out here in our congregation, I pray that if they need to bring those to the altar, they'd take just a few moments to come and pray with these godly prayer partners. We give you this time. May you be glorified. May the Holy Spirit be in charge of these moments together. In Jesus' name. Would you stand in an attitude of prayer and seeking the Lord?